Hello, welcome to Book Shambles again. Trent with some admin off the top as usual. This is the second episode we recorded at the Latitude Festival backstage at the Speakeasy tent. We talked to Dr. Hannah Critchlow and Dr. Michael Brooks from the Science-ish podcast. Uh, we check in with Matt Haig. We had him on the show recently, obviously, just before his book, uh, Notes on a Nervous Planet, came out. And now we're talking to him just after it's came out. And also uh, Jen Brister, comedian Jen Brister, chats to Robin as well, same as last week, and all our festival podcasts, uh, be aware that it's at a festival, so there is some noise and music and stuff going on in the background, uh, at one point in particular, there's a gospel choir that's uh, really going for it while we chatted to Hannah, so keep that in mind. We do have some more episodes uh, coming from Latitude, but they are recordings of the live shows we did rather than the chats backstage. So keep an eye or an ear out for those. Remember, we are at the Edinburgh Festival for six episodes of Book Shambles live at Bannerman's at 5.30 on August 17, 19, 20, 21, 22 and 23. Robin will be hosting those with a different guest each day. Our first guest uh, we've announced on August 23rd. We're going to be joined by Mark Watson, comedian and author Mark Watson will be with us on that day and we'll be revealing who the other guests are very soon and those shows are part of the free fringe so just turn up uh make sure you get there early so you get a seat and there's no admission to those they're all they're all events and thank you very much as always to our patreon supporters we've got uh some stuff coming up for patreon supporters very soon we'll let you know about that uh next week hopefully and uh, also don't forget if you're pledging at the uh behind the scenes level there was a an exclusive video that went up uh last week or maybe the week before from Latitude Festival uh Robin and myself went on to Dylan's mobile book bus and did a bit of secondhand book shopping so that video uh is up for you and if you'd like to watch that or become a Patreon supporter, uh, patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can do that. And I should have mentioned, if you want more details about the Edinburgh stuff, uh, you can go to the Cosmic Shambles website, go to the events section there, and you'll get all the details. And now on with this week's episode. Welcome to Festival Book Shambles, uh, extra latitude festival still, uh, with Dr. Hannah Critchlow, who... Uh, has just written The Ladybird Book of Consciousness, which uh, I love the fact that other titles in the series include Quantum Mechanics, Nuclear Deterrence, and Witchcraft. It's pretty eclectic, isn't it, the series and topics? <laughs> consciousness, there is a certain amount. I mean, this is what... What I want to know is that whether it's a relief to be asked to write a short book on consciousness rather than a long one, because in one way, it is such... A, every time I read a book about consciousness... Uh, you, there's a point philosophically that you get entrenched, I think. Whereas this, you can leap through. Mm-hmm. You've got the uh, the. Well, let, let's. Start. What did you find the hardest idea of consciousness to place into one page? Uh, we can come back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think is in terms of people understanding consciousness? Because it does seem there's there's an enormous battle sometimes amongst neuroscientists, psychologists, amongst philosophers even to define consciousness. So someone like Dan Dennett will say that, that almost consciousness almost doesn't exist. You know, there's that old thing, isn't there, that his book Consciousness Explained, as someone would say, Consciousness Explained Away. Mm-hmm. So what, for, for you, for, for um, a general audience, what are the difficult things in trying to understand what consciousness itself is? 
Well, it's been debated for uh, centuries, kind of trying to understand it, to give a succinct definition. And I think the easiest way to think about it is consciousness allows us to each experience the world in our own unique way. Um, so our perception of the world is built on a past set of experiences which again goes on to shape how we process information from the world around us and that creates our own unique reality which then dictates how we interact with the world and that is basically consciousness our ability to form our own subjective unique view of the world and in the last say 50 years what have been the major changes in terms of us beginning to understand because i mean does something like once fmris came in our ability to, does that actually make any difference of us being able to be able to look at the hardware in action yeah so there's some uh, incredible studies that have been able to photograph the brain in real time as people are thinking different things or taking different substances for example uh, so david nutt at imperial college in the last couple years has been doing studies with volunteers taking small doses micro doses of LSD and you can see um, networks within the brain just spark up with diverse activity kind of opening up the mind if you like um, so that people can see the world in a new way uh, but I think really um, the massive breakthroughs have been in terms of our being able to manipulate how model organisms interact with the world um, and really look with high precision and high resolution at what is happening, what's happening in the very um, sub-anatomical kind of resolution, uh, what's happening in terms of the connections in the brain. So connectomics is a kind of a big area within neuroscience, within brain science, trying to map the 86 billion or so nerve cells that are out in our brain. Each one of them connects with about 10,000 others to make this connectome of 10, 100 trillion um, connections within the mind. And it's that that shifts and changes as we experience the world and as we take on new um, bodies of information so as, as you learn something new about the world, um, you can see a new connection from one nerve cell to another nerve cell occurring. Um, and as you consolidate that learned thing to, into a memory, it becomes a much more stable um, connection, which can become almost like a highway in the mind, like a motorway in the mind. Um, and we've got 100 trillion or so of these connections within our mind, and that allows us to, it provides the route by which we navigate our own worlds and interact with it. This cartography of the mind, this map that we each create in our minds, and every single person on this planet has a very different map in their own mind. And that's, that map basically dictates how how we interact with the world and how we, how we read it. Uh, and so now there's been technological revolutions, for example, optogenetics, which is a really cool technique, which was discovered maybe 10, 15 years ago, um, that are allowing us to um, activate discrete nerve cells in the brain in a conscious, fully moving, fully thinking, fully deciding little mammal as it goes about its world. And you can start to um, use really high-powered microscopy to look at particular nerve cells and activate them and change the circuitry as they are thinking and moving. Have we got, in terms of, are we at a point where we're now waiting for the technology that the experiments are there in the mind? I was talking to Sarah Jane Blakemore a while ago and she was saying that the, the, what we really need is the ability 
to, in, in the way that you're looking in terms of the microscopic way, but the ability to look at the human brain where we can look at just one millimetre by one millimetre, we can have a huge scaled up, so we can see each, I mean, less than a you know, micrometres of mm-hmm. activity amongst the neurons, and that she felt that we're, we're going to be, we're decades away from having that next level of technology that will really take us into uh, a deep understanding of how the human brain creates the world. Yeah, so I mean, for the human brain, that's not possible at the moment, but for model organisms like mice or fruit fly or um, little worms, for example, you can, in the case of mice, you can scratch away at their skull and then put a little prism in through their skull and then direct really... um, uh, photons of light and also use genetic engineering techniques to really discreetly and with high resolution look at particular nerve cells and look at their connections and see the connections forming and video them and there's some absolutely mind-blowing videos if you just type into google uh, dendritic spine video um, you'll see these connections actually changing and taking place in the minds of these mice as they navigate the world so we we are there uh, in terms of resolution for model organisms, but yeah, not quite for humans because, for example, I can't really genetically manipulate you so that you're expressing GFP, a big dye, a green fluorescent dye, in in your brain, in your nerve cells, so that that acts as a. I am up label. for it. Are I you love. For it? <laughs> I love. It's like there's nothing I like more than someone putting either a magnetic plate to the side of my brain to remove my motor region activity, which I did with uh, just in terms of verbal. Uh, did that with Sophie Scott. Which is amazing, a blast of magnetism. So uh-huh. you just suddenly go, and you can't. I, I enjoy that. I love going into a brain scan. So you know, if it gets to the point where, despite the damage required, and once my son's grown up, I better wait till he's done that. Then I'm quite happy to have all manner of uh, manipulation that's required. Yeah, that's very kind of you. Sir. you yeah, volunteer. so just uh, I've recorded that. That is now contractual <laughs> podcast contract. Um, when did you realise that? Uh, well, actually, no. I'm going to ask you something else, and then we're going to go back. But just very quickly, but which is. There are books out there, not written by scientists, which uh, seem to show a deep misunderstanding of what neuroscience is about. Um, I'm not going to name them, but what do you think are the most uh, commonly held uh, misnomers about neuroscience and about our understanding of the human brain? Or what do you find sometimes when you're doing talks, when you're doing Q&As, is there something that keeps returning where you think, ah, this is something that has got into popular consciousness and we need to get the information out there to uh, contrast it? Or maybe you don't feel that there is, maybe it's not that bad. I think there's um, growing interest in this myth that we use only use 10% of our brain at any point and is there a possibility that we could boost um, our brain power? Uh, as, a, as an individual, is there something that we can do to give ourselves amazing new skills? Um, and there's a lot of discussion about the use of cognitive enhancers or smart drugs mm. to try and increase uh, how our brains work. And also going back to this microdosing of LSD, which some people are doing to enhance creativity. Have you tried that? I haven't tried it, no. I'm fasc- I, I just read Michael Pollan's book. I don't know if you know Mike, Michael Pollan, who uh, started off really as a food writer and then wrote something... Um, botany of desire and his latest one is about the first time he took lsd and the history of lsd and i had not known and i think he's been to he certainly interviewed david nutt and then he then he went initially tried mushrooms and then he had his lsd dose and i am fascinated now in its return to uh, acceptable science after you know having a certain period of time 
where LSD was just seen as being Timothy Leary and some crazy cranks. Mm-hmm. And now, I think it's, yeah, I think that's really interesting that now the governments are kind of getting on board uh, with the idea of these drugs, not because they could be useful recreationally for people, uh, but instead it could be used to enhance our productivity at work. So there's an economic benefit maybe to, to these drugs. Mm. So now, I, I th- and I think that is why there's a growing interest in, in this, because policymakers are interested in funding research to find out a little bit more about them. David Nuss, I, I find fascinating the work that he's seen. Uh, um, thank heavens the government let him go so he had more time to deal with these activities. Um, what was it that drew you to neuroscience? When did, Do you remember first seeing something or reading something where that put you on the path that you're on now? Yeah, so about 15 years ago, I went and worked as a nursing assistant in a psychiatric hospital in an adolescent ward, uh, and I just became fascinated by the brain there. There was a lot of um, people, these poor children who had had, they'd suffered some really terrible experiences in their early lives, uh, and they were then heavily sectioned, and in one of the, it's basically where the NHS refers people that can't be treated by their local authorities, they're sent to this private charity hospital um, when they can't be treated anywhere else. So there's some really uh, troubling, troubled people there. Um, and it just became, it was really obvious that we didn't really understand what was causing these problems for these people and that there also wasn't any proper treatment either. So that's why I appreciate I, I know this one, but in terms of mental health, I mean, I was very interested recently in uh, a friend of mine is working on a documentary about the idea that schizophrenia is, is a myth. The actual idea that there are a series of separate possible conditions. But I don't know whether, the, whether you're able to answer, answer but I, I'm fascinated again in, in the last 20 years when we see things like the, uh, you know, the DSM books and, and what has been decided to be mental illnesses and what then we then decide are, are, are placed in entirely the wrong umbrella terms. Yeah. So there's, yeah, so there's a huge amount of, um, there's a huge amount of overlap between different sim- symptoms. Firstly, there's a massive problem with the diagnostic system within psychiatry and then also treatment. Um, so there's a huge amount of overlap between, for example, people that are affected by schizophrenia and those people that have autism. And then if you burrow down into what's going on in the brain, so I was looking for my PhD, looking at brain connectivity and schizophrenia, and there's similar th- things that you find in terms of something called dendritic spine plasticity, which is the cellular basis for how one nerve cell, the majority of one of the connections in the brain happen via these little things called dendritic spines. Um, and you find problems with both people with schizophrenia and people with autism in terms of their connections. Uh, And so it seems as though both of these conditions are the architectural reason for these conditions is that they can't process information very well and so their perception of the world is altered. And it also affects them how they integrate memories as well. The... um just two more questions. I know you've got a thing too. Which is one is you uh, one of the pages of the Ladybird book, free will, the possibility of it being uh, an illusion, the Libe experiment. Do things like that. Sometimes it seems to worry people. I once received a letter from someone which actually said, I think we've done it on the Infinite Monkey Cage, where it said, uh, I, is free will an illusion or not? Because I don't know what action to take if it is. And I said, well, you can't take any action because that's part, and that what sometimes these ideas which are both scientific and philosophical. In the end, we can't rise above or change the illusion, can we? So, pragmatically, 
How much does it matter whether free will is an illusion? Okay, so this is actually the topic of my next book, uh, The Science of Fate, uh, and, and whether there is any free will. And I think it is... It seems as though free will is largely illusion, an, an illusion as we're finding out more and more about the brain and how we make decisions in the world and how our perception, our, our unique consciousness emerges. Um, how much scope for decision making do we actually have or is, or is it already embedded within our brains and we're just following this, this code of, of how we should be interacting in the world. Um, and I think uh, we're finding out more and more that more of our behaviours are very much ingrained and that we have less scope for plasticity than we than we might have been led to believe over the last 10 or 15 years or so this you know buzzword of plasticity that we can change our behaviors and kind of grow in any way um does that does that take anything away from us as a species i don't think so the more i learn about the brain the more i am in awe of us as a species of the, the beauty and the intricacy and the sophistication of this design, of this fantastic system that allows us to, to exhibit all these different myriad of behaviours and feel all of these different emotions and to, to be. I think it's, yeah, I don't think that takes anything away from us. Thank you very much, Hannah. Hannah, if you'd like to, uh, we'll find out afterwards whether remembering ideas uh, about the nature of neuroscience is aided or inhibited by having particularly loud gospel music in the background later on. That's some of the uh, research that we've done. We'll do exactly the same interview without gospel behind us as a control and we'll find out what happens. Thank you. Uh, Lovely. Hello, Festival Shambles from Latitude Festival. With one of, well, genuinely, actually, one of my favourite science writers, I think someone who is quite brilliant at explaining, in particular, ideas of physics, Michael Brooks. And uh, I've read, I think I've read most, I've read Free Radicals, but did that yeah. change its name? Yeah, yeah, W.H. Smith decided they didn't like it being called Free Radicals, and so it had to go to the subtitle, which was The Secret Anarchy of Science. So, you know, it, it shows you who's in control of this industry. It's funny, isn't it? <laughs> I, I am interested in whether people now... Don't, like my last tour, the title was Pragmatic Insanity, and I kept hearing from people go, well, what does that mean? I go, but just read the second line of the blurb. <laughs> well, well, no, no, but what does... Well, it's, I thought it was a fun title. Yeah. And, it kind of, and then it turns out it now means it is too opaque for people. Yeah, yeah. And, and you have to call it uh, Robin Lindsay's Merry Fun Time. <laughs> it, um, has to be, it has to be that kind of Ron Seal. What does it, what does it do? Yeah. Tell, tell me on the tin straight yeah. away will they read the back blurb no, <laughs> no they, 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 won't be. Well, they don't sound like they're readers in the first book no, that's, uh, right. that's exactly who we're trying to get to but, but um, I also I mean the first book I read uh, was it 13 Things That Don't Make Sense that's the one I yeah. think that was the first one of yours I read yes. and you did a very good also one of those guides uh, there's one on the universe there's one on evolution there's one on God and the 20 different uh, ideas in, in physics it, the, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That 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 book. Which, yeah, the uh, big was, questions in physics. I think yeah, it was. that's yes, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, and that's so. What do you uh, in turn? What is the the way of man? Because this is one of the problems with twentieth century and twenty first century physics is some of it without the equations is almost impenetrable. Yeah. So what are you when you're trying to explain ideas of, uh, for instance, quantum mechanics? Yeah. How do you find the way to go, I'm going to be able to do this in six pages? Oh, I mean, you can almost never do it in six pages, but you can, you can sort of hold people's hand. I mean, the thing to do is hold people's hand, first of all, and stop them being scared, because basically everyone had a bad time with physics at school. And so, so you're automatically, you know, they're on the back foot, they're on the defensive. So you have to say, it's okay. 
it's all right, you know, this is going to be fine. And you won't understand everything, because some of it is just maths, and I can't talk to you about the maths, I can't tell you what the maths is doing, but I can sort of paint this picture. And you say, you know, let's start with the easiest thing. So I always like to start um, quantum physics with the light bulb, because that's, I mean, that's how Max Planck started out. It was like, can you make this light bulb more efficient? And on the way to doing that, which I don't think he ever did achieve, uh, he invented quantum mechanics, because he realised it was the only way to explain what was actually going on inside a light bulb. And so it's just little hand-holdy kind of things. And then, so, you know, you get to... So you have to, at some point, t- tell people about the wave function, which is a mathematical entity to some people. And physicists disagree about this. And they talk about whether it's actually a mathematical thing or whether it's a real property of the atom, say, that if you're describing it. And so you've got these dilemmas. And I think once you point out that physicists don't know all the answers to this as well, that really helps people relax into it a bit more. It's like, OK, uh, so I'll try and deal with this. But if I know that even the physicists don't know it all, then then it's easier well it's interesting Phil, Philip Ball's just written his Beyond Weird yeah great book and I was way. chatting to him and that was very interesting about the fact he says there's too many ideas that are banded around to make these uh, to make it succulent and alluring like many worlds yeah. as in yeah. in terms of not a cosmological many worlds but, uh, or, you know, in terms of universes but, yeah. but the many worlds of each time we make a decision another universe another universe yeah. so there's no reason no. to actually believe that is no. a, an idea and that I found interesting. That moment where you go, here is a brilliant story, but is it rooted enough in the science? It's an alluring story. How do you make the judgment on wooing people in with a wonderful narrative and going, at what point does it become too loose? So I, I quite often start from the premise that you'll have heard of min- many worlds. Yeah, you'll have watched Rick and Morty, or you'll have heard of the multiverse, and people have, will have come across this idea vaguely in the background of their lives. And I say, that comes from... And actually, then I'll introduce the idea, uh, which is where it actually comes from, of Hilbert space, which is this abstract mathematical idea that you need in order to make quantum physics work. And this has multiple dimensions. And we've known about this since, like, 1926, uh, when Louis de Broglie sort of did his first model of the atom that had waves instead of particles. And he said, you know, we need lots of extra dimensions here. And so it's not something new and newfangled, but that's the root of where that's come from. And I think modern physicists have taken it. And so, I mean, the multiverse, Hugh Everett III, who came up with it, kind of had a good reason to do it, which was that it was a good way of kind of explaining what goes on in quantum experiments without resorting to saying something magical happens, which is, you know, what, what actually is physicists, that's what they call measurement in quantum physics. It's something ma- magical. It stops being all these different possibilities and starts being one. I love nobody, that. That's nobody that knows New why. Yorker cartoon, isn't it? Of the equation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he goes, what happens not here? sure about the middle bit, and then the magic happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we wanted to do And, and I think that's, that's somehow, physicists are quite happy with, like, this is, this is actually quantum physics. It's, so most of them don't stop and think about what it actually means. But some of them will say, oh, well, maybe there's a multiverse, and, and, you know, this happens in universe A, and this happens in universe B, and they interfere together. And, and that's sort of, you know, always been a justified thing. But somehow now it's got boiled down to, oh, yeah, there's another version of you in another universe. And it's, you know, having a better time than you are or a worse time than you are. Or, you know, and so people like to tell, you know, these kind of wacky stories. And there is good reason for them, but, but people don't introduce the good reason for them. So these Hilbert spaces, these abstract mathematical spaces, they are there in the mass of quantum theory. You can't get away from them. So it's not wrong to say maybe that means there's kind of all these possibilities and all these worlds. Um, but it's sort of sleight of hand to start talking about, you know, yeah, that you could be living an alternative life. Also, it, there's a danger, isn't there, of then going, 
now I don't have to take quite as much responsibility. It's a little bit like, in some ways, I feel <laughs> like that about terraforming Mars. Don't worry, we can really screw this planet yeah. up because we're going to terraform it's the other planets. And you go, this one is terraformed. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of where the word it, it's all naturally happening. You know, and that, and Talk always, about making work for yourself. Yes, yeah, so like simulation theory. You know, that's another one where it seems to me that, that in terms of its actual pragmatic sense, I was just talking uh, earlier um, to someone about, about the nature of. Um, uh, free will being an illusion, yeah, and it, it doesn't actually. In fact, you dealt with. Did you deal with free will? Yeah, in thirteen, in 13 things, things, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And in the end, it doesn't actually matter, does it? Well, no. I mean, it's. It, so I think it was Stephen Pinker who said it's a fiction, but it's a useful fiction. So I think that's the, the best way of summa- you know, summarizing the whole thing. Is is that yes, you can argue that we have um, a modicum of free will, but it's really long term planning. It's not, it, you know, forced by our genetics. It, but you don't live like that. I mean, nobody gets up in the morning and says. Oh, I don't have free will. You know, what's the point of living? I hope they don't. Anyway, well, also, you, but you can't just sit there and go. I'm not going to use my illusion of free will. I'll just see what happens. Uh, it, let's move on to science ish, which is uh, that's been very successful. I mean, a few festivals now, yeah. and packed tents. What are you doing with science ish? What's what's what? What are you? Ho- I mean, it's 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 a lovely idea of taking popular culture. Um, Icons and popular ideas that are, and then using that as a springboard into the science. Yeah, so what we're doing, I think, hopefully, that's different to what other people do with Hollywood stuff, is we're not criticizing Hollywood. So, what we're saying is actually, when you look at these films, they are laying out some big questions. And these screenwriters and directors, they're not idiots. You know, they're not like brainless idiots. They actually think about this stuff. If you talk to, you know, Alex Garland about Ex Machina, you know, he read academic texts about artificial intelligence in order to kind of inform his screenplay. And because he had that, then he had this sort of depth of understanding where he could raise difficult questions. So what we do is kind of hopefully take these kind of blockbuster things and, and kind of pull them apart and say actually within that there is an interesting question so we just did for instance Jurassic World the new Jurassic World film on the one on one level it's just another Jurassic Park film and uh, and on another level it asks really difficult questions about whether we should de-extinct animals whether once we've de-extincted them are we then responsible for making sure they stay alive um, there's issues of human cloning in there without giving any spoilers away and, and whether you know clone, how clones will feel about themselves and actually when you dig beneath the surface of a lot of films there's really good science to be messed with and, and, and explored what's your favourite in terms of one that is uh, you know an, an acorn for an oak tree of ideas oh um, it's without a doubt for me it's Gattaca so it's um so this was dismissed. So this came out in 1997. It found various articles in Nature, the journal Nature, and in New Scientist and other places, like dismissing this film completely, saying what an outrageous thing it was that this this director was, you know, questioning the genetic revolution and saying, you know, it will bring this terrible dystopia. And uh, and then you fast forward to 2012, and there was a, an assembly of NASA science, scientists at a conference who voted it the best most predictive science fiction film of all time in terms of how it raised, it saw the issues that were coming that scientists didn't even see um, which I think is, is really you know that's why it's such a good film because it raises these questions it makes you explore them at a time actually when scientists were saying oh it's not going to be like that stop worrying and actually it, we were right and, and now we're having debates about gene editing and, and gene selection and what it means to be a sort of what's a perfect human being and that's really good the other one I really like is Jurassic Park because uh, there were loads of paleontologists who claimed at the start 
um, that oh yeah, when this first came out, they said oh this is no good because like paleontology is going to get nothing from this. It's just exploiting our discipline, and um, and then like you've got a whole generation of paleontologists now who stand up and say yeah, I was inspired into it by Jurassic Park, and and it's prompted papers. You know, there's literally been scientific papers prompted by people seeing the film and then exploring the issues. That's great. It's like with archaeology where Sarah Parkak, who's a very she, you know. Raids of the Lost Ark. She saw that, and that—that's an interesting part of of what movies and mass culture can do. Yeah, is the inspiration. Yeah, yeah. So we celebrate that very, you know, very openly, very deliberately, and and make people sort of and give people the chance, I guess, to look at the questions and maybe see the film slightly differently after they've listened to what we have to say about it. Is there a line that's drawn where you just go now that cause I, even at the time when when Disney's Black Hole came out? Yeah, I mean, I know it's. Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think, is least favourite film. You know, there. But even 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 at the time, uh, they uh, seemed to um, there, there were people writing going, "No, this, no, what are you doing? This is yeah. a total misunderstanding of black holes." Yeah, and and of course that's going to happen because the narrative comes first. And you know, obviously, the story has to reign supreme. Why Interstellar is, is like got all the guff it's got about love being the only thing that transcends the fifth dimension or something like that. Of course, you know that's not true. You know, I hopefully don't need to tell people that. But um, you know, the, there's it's sort of it's issues. Terrible, like a terrible Valentine's where you go, you don't love me enough. We haven't transcended the fifth dimension. <laughs> I thought you liked these chocolates. The chocolates are fine, but they're not transcending any dimension. And all this comes from the physics of black holes, how? Yeah. <laughs> but you know, we we try not to do. I mean, we have a laugh about things like that, but we we don't. We don't, you know, we're not there to dissect how Sandra Bullock's hair is moving. You know, is it moving properly in, in microgravity, or would it move slightly differently? Uh, we're, we're, hopefully, we get a bit beyond that. I do know astronauts. I remember Chris Hadfield because gravity must have come out not long after his last mission on the ISS come out. and one of the things most often he would say is no we don't wear pants like that in space <laughs> they are not useful pants in outer space <laughs> thank you very much you're very welcome um well, I don't need to say all the hello, this is Books no, Amber, so it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, Matt, well, last time we met was, well, it was about a month and a half, wasn't it, before the book came out, and now it's just come out, hasn't it? It has. came out two weeks ago, yeah. I'm still in my neurotic mode of, um, you know, book touring, raiding the minibar for um, salted cashew nuts and just sitting there after missing the evening meal and the existential crisis of the hotel rooms. But, no, it's going... Going quite well, I think, but um, yeah, a bit of a blur. It, has your partner yet said to you, uh, can you stop bringing back complimentary shampoos? The cupboard's full. <laughs> I got told off for that. When I, when I was touring once, I thought yeah. it was like, I was staying in hotels that had good stuff. I was like, oh, this is good quality stuff. And then yeah. so we don't need any more small shampoos. Uh, yeah, small shampoos. Um, now, the thing I don't like about hotel rooms is, and I, I shouldn't be saying this having written notes on a nervous planet, but it is hard to... Um, charge your phone by the bed isn't it because the sockets are never in the right places and also hotel lighting is just so complicated you need a phd and understand because you put your card in the thing and then there's 17 lights come on there's always yeah. one that you can't locate how to switch off that that light it takes me eight hours but yeah other than that it's going quite well i like the actual event side of it it's just the stuff in between what's i mean th- this is the I, I love the fact you you put a thing on social media about just the excitement of you walk into a bookshop and there's your book and your your book is 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 front and center everywhere at the moment and that do you, are you able to put into as you did when you put that up on social media just that context of thinking of that human being who at one point had had almost given up 
and to now see that you know you're writing in fact earlier on today uh, one of the things in fact we were just talking about Bryony Gordon and others being on a panel yeah. The Humans came up as a great book to read so people are, are discovering your you know your, your earlier books earlier about time was very uh, successful it's amazing um, it's sort of surreal and I'm you know I'm someone I, it doesn't magically change your brain chemistry so you're just still neurotic about it but um, yeah I feel like I did my good decade or so as Mr. Struggling Writer no one had heard of you know getting dropped by publishers all of that stuff so I am grateful for it because I know what I know it's not normal and I know I've got to be grateful for it at the moment as long as it lasts um, but yeah it gives you a load of new neuroses but the difference is no one's going to be sympathetic to you because they're not going to say oh poor you having a book come out do quite well that's the hard thing is it when you sometimes see those documentaries about millionaire pop stars and I think I presume what they've done is they imagined oh if I'm a millionaire pop star I'll be somewhere else but the trouble is your brain travels with you and I think that that seems to be one of the the problems of, yes. of people who strive specifically yes. for success not necessarily with the work itself but thinking that success will be a cure no, absolutely. I think that gets people into trouble. Because, I mean, my whole big theory is that we're overloaded anyway. And any kind of success can just add to that overloadedness. More stuff to think about. More emails to answer. More obligations. And I think happiness is often sort of taking things away. So I think, it, I think it's still possible. And, it, it's lovely. and with this book, I feel like because, it, because it's on the back of reasons to stay alive... Um, I was a kind of expectation for it and I feel like I can sit back a little bit more and appreciate it in a way I didn't with reasons to stay alive because that just I just felt totally exposed revealing all my stuff about my sort of suicidal days and everything else um, and that took me ages to sort of process but with this I can actually enjoy it a bit more now I'm old enough and ugly enough to do that and it does also I mean there is a tremendous I, I don't know if when you, when you were writing this and when you were uh, reasons to stay alive did you have any sense of just how pragmatic it was? Because it does seem, in terms of use, when I sometimes see the way people connect with you, uh, sometimes when they're writing about your work or sometimes when they connect you with social media, they've got something which has been useful, tremendously useful. for you. Again, it's, it's something we've talked about a lot on these Latitude podcasts, but to be given permission seems to be part of whether it's about mental health whether it's about creating art these are right. these things right yeah I mean uh, well I don't know I mean but my intention writing it was to just make people feel less of a weirdo for having mental health stuff because most of us have some kind of mental health stuff at some point in our lives and um, I mean we all have mental health obviously but you know bad stuff and yeah I mean I can remember when I was ill that was the thing I felt more than anything. I was just totally isolated. There were books out there, some great books out there on depression and stuff, but it was academic, dense stuff that you wouldn't necessarily want or be able to read when you're in that state. So I just wanted to um, make people feel um, less scared of themselves and aware that it's, a, that it's a transient thing. Even if you're ill forever, your mind does not stay at the exact same level forever. And... Um, yeah, that's been comforting. I mean, I think for me, the, the best responses for me are people who haven't been depressed but have wanted to understand their daughter or a partner uh, and it's caused all sorts of problems in their relationship or whatever and then the books help them see this invisible thing, you know, and that, that for me is the bit where I feel like, oh yeah, this has been of use and it helps. 
And how much do you enjoy? Because you're, you're going on in about, I think, half an hour or so. Uh, yeah. Obviously, the pre-bit, I, I remember John Ronson when he was here, and it was the first time he was publicly going to talk about the psychopath test that hadn't come out, which, of course, ended up becoming an enormous success. But his nerves... Were you know and everyone has has those nerves, but once you're out there, that that being able to talk to that audience that are reading you to see your readers, is yeah, I, I like it. I'm, I'm weirdly, it's weird. I'm I'm nervous um, in all kinds of situations. I'm nervous at the M&S checkout and making eye contact. But weirdly, when when I'm just sort of talking about a subject I know quite well, if I'm in conversation with someone, if I'm on my own. Um, on stage like you sometimes have to be I don't like that so much but yeah I'm okay with this stuff because I I'm kind of getting used to it but I was absolutely the person who had total fear of public speaking you know I can remember a a art history seminar when I was a student I was like 11 people and I spent about a full term getting drunk to try and forget that I've got this tiny presentation to 11 people and that was like everything for me and so uh, it it sort of gives me a kind of confidence just knowing I can vaguely do this and also the thing is with anxiety you get so used to being anxious in any everyday situation that the stuff that everyone else gets anxious about well you think I can deal with this because I'm I'm so used to dealing with anxiety anyway you know and you're uh as well as going around the UK doing uh, events for this book, you're also going. You're going to Australia. Yes, going to Australia in August, and um, yeah, I met Ben Edinburgh doing a, a, a show on the 26th or something at the um, Edinburgh Book Festival, and so yeah, it's all it's all happening. But um, I'm just trying. I'm trying as much as possible to drag my family along because I'm a bit of a pathetic homesick softy so I, I i try and have those with me thanks very much <laughs> thanks robin no it's really i'll tell you what we'll start uh, welcome to uh, another uh, bit of um, book shambles festival shambles uh latitude festival with jen brister who i think i first met would it be about 12 13 years ago at the albany it was a long oh, time no. back. you were oh. you've only just started so i think it was even longer than that i think it was about 15 years yeah yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, we were just talking before about, uh, well, things like um, the, the nature of free speech and, and, and people who both describe themselves as defenders of free speech at the same time as trying to shut people up with, uh, with threats. But I'll just mention, because I think our first conversation very probably was about Morrissey. Oh, it? my God. Yeah, I can't Man. bear that. Because <laughs> we were talking about how hard it is to like Morrissey with every, every time he opens his mouth. <laughs> and that was 13 years ago, and we held 15 years. I, mean, I know. We knew all the signs. Didn't I know. We? I held on, but he's like he's gone now. I've had to let go. I, when, th- when did you let go? About probably about four or five years ago. Yeah, yeah. It just every time he opened his mouth about immigration, I was like, "You're not speaking to me. I don't know what you're saying." And also, uh, you know, my mum's an immigrant, so shut up. <laughs> It's really, a, a, one of my favourite ones with him was when he went, you know, I was walking through Knightsbridge the other day and you could barely even hear an, an, English, an English voice. voice. And you go, well, that's because you're in a, an area which is an enormous number of tourists. Yeah. You're in a tourist area. Exactly. I was, I was walking around Nelson's Collins. I was Nelson's going through Harrods. And nearly and everyone <laughs> seemed to be foreign. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. That's the only bloody industry we've got left, Morrissey. But the thing is, if you go through central London, of course you're going to hear loads of different, like, you know accents and uh, languages and I and also that's what I love about it I lo- that's what I love about London I love that it is a melting pot but the truth of it is most of them are going home so panic yeah. not Morrissey 
Yes, can I just check? Yeah, I'm going home on Tuesday. Thank you. And where um, does Morrissey live? Ironically, I know it's well. That's the that's one of the great and fascinating things. It's always it? the expats the, the that have the biggest versus, problem. Yeah. 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 Um, so you let's talk about your show first of all. You've got a new show going up to the end of the fringe. Uh, yes, I have called Meaningless. It's I, I like this show. Sometimes I have to say I like it, and I'm like I just hope it works out. Um, but this show, I, I I think I'm I feel like I'm more attached to it. It's, it's speaking more from my voice than I've ever than than ever before like before I feel like you get stuck in a rut don't you as a comedian where you sort of follow certain tropes and you go down certain the same roads slight slight variation of the same story and I just feel like I've kind of gone off piece a bit and it's it and it's it's a bit scarier for me to perform it actually but I'm enjoying it I'm talking about stuff that I probably wouldn't have done even a year ago so what was because that is a very interesting a couple of people I've talked to here I, I, I think that moment that the distance of your life is required the events of your life for you to actually go hang on a minute it's the old, you know the, the, that line about you know life is lived forwards and understood backwards yeah. there's a sudden point where you go hang on a minute I feel that somehow I've created permission to talk about this permission to turn this into a joke or I feel that I've suddenly got an understanding of my own absurdity madness it, or it's perspective it's entirely perspective and this is going to sound like such a cliche because it is but it's really since my kids were born I, I don't I can't explain it there's, there's you know if someone had said this to me I would have gone oh just shut up what are you talking about but I, the things that I care about now sort of mean a lot less and you know like the things I cared about before mean less is what I mean and since the children were born and so and one of those things ironically is my career and, I, and I'm not saying that I don't care about my career but I'm not strangling it and it's not the focus of my entire world and I don't just identify as a comedian whereas before that was the big chunk of my identity was oh I am a comedian whereas now it's like I am a parent who happens to do stand-up comedy and that's really freed me up in what I can when I'm approaching writing and I, and I wouldn't even say it's writing a lot of the stuff I'm doing is just it's been improved on stage and because I feel really free in a way that I felt quite like married to my material or tied to it in a way that I wouldn't go off and talk about other things and and, and I guess that's what's created this show is that I've, I've allowed myself to talk about stuff that normally would have gone the audience might not like this so I'm not going to say it whereas now I'm like I couldn't care less if you don't like it I'm going to say it anyway do, do you know what I mean? yeah I do so where, where, where that there is it's, it's the danger something I've talked about with Josie quite a lot as well that bit that when you are able to present what you believe you are as a human being on stage the, the risk of course is that if people don't like it they don't like you but the joy of that is when you do get the contact with people afterwards where it's meant something where you have somehow crossed a point where they go oh that was my private experience and it's something and they can then that is it you go it's kind of it is it's worth that risk it is worth that risk and it does mean that you are kind of splitting a crowd you are splitting your audience i mean i am writing stuff or, and I'm performing stuff now about things like <laughs> and this really does alienate some people but things like the menopause or perimenopause which is something I'm going through at the moment and talking about periods and things like that which I felt really sensitive. what's that so the perimenopause the perimenopause is the period of time before this is the thing nobody knows that's like fight club I didn't I had to, even googling it is hard there's really very little information for women about uh, the menopause fortunately now I think there are things called menopause clinics where you can go and speak to somebody and they can tell you about it but anyway 
in a nutshell, it's just the period before the menopause. And this, for a woman, can be three months, it can be ten years. And there are, this is when your estrogen levels drop as you head towards the menopause and your periods then end. And so your body is changing and lots of things can happen. You can get hot flushes, you can get mood swings. Uh, you know, there's loads of different symptoms to it. And it's just about a natural cycle in a, in a woman's body, but we don't seem to know anything about it and no one talks about it. And the minute you start saying something about it, everyone's sphincters clench. They're like, oh, I'm just talking about a woman's hormones. But the fact is, mainly what I'm saying is, we don't know anything about it. Why don't we know anything about it? I'm sure if men went through the menopause, we, we know a lot more about male pattern baldness and flipping soft cocks than we do about, you know than we do about our own bodies and, and I think it's also about women demanding it and saying look enough now we need to know more about this because we are you know we are 50% of the population why is no research being done on something that affects every single woman in the entire world and so I'm uh, talking about themes like that and it literally can it can, can entirely spit the room but exactly what you said when you come off stage and talk about it women come up to me and go I'm so glad you're talking about this because I feel really embarrassed about it because it's all about fertility. Men's fertility lasts until till, till they drop dead, practically. But for women, it, it will come to a natural end. And that can be, for some women in their 30s, for some women in their 60s. Let's talk about it. What was, uh, in terms of the book shambles element of the show, did you do, with the particular places you went to for research, you were saying there wasn't much there on, on, on the internet. Uh, are, there, are, are there books that you used? Are there, you know, whether it's fictional ideas or non-fictional ideas dealing with this? I very I went to one of those menopause clinics and just got a lot of leaflets about it and then that's how I got most of my information because what I found from the NHS website and what I found from the internet was really conflicting information and there hasn't been a great deal of research in terms of when they're looking at uh, doing research on women and, and, and as to what the symptoms are of the menopause or, or they're looking at maybe 100 women and that's just really not a big enough sort of pool of people to be picking from to decide you know equivocally what is happening to a woman's body during that period before the menopause um Jermaine Greer actually and I know she's a controversial figure but I it's a book that I, I do want to, to read she is talking about um the menopause and she's kind of almost saying we kind of need to lose that word as, as in um and and uh, and not medicalize it because it is a natural process that a woman goes through and it can be dealt with through often through like it can be dealt through through therapy or it can be dealt with through sort of natural um uh i don't know if I, i'm not talking about sort of um you know sniff on a piece of bark or something but there are sort of natural remedies that women can take that can help with those symptoms and and to try to because there like with everything it's been very heavily medicalized and the, the 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 only treatment really that i've heard of is hrt um and then there are side effects to that that people do worry about whether it might be breast cancer or diabetes or what have you so um i would be really interested and i haven't read it so it's probably not fair for me to say if it's a good book or not but i'd be interested to read jermaine gray's book on it definitely and what are the other, in, in terms of recently in stand-up, have there been any particular inspirations? What are the things that you feel that you can't keep in now? Now they, they have to come out 
Um, yeah, so that, that I've been, uh, women's bodies and talking about how, what, you know, our hormones and talking about the, our bodies and taking agency over, over that, you know, because we've been censored for so long about what we can and can't talk about. We've been told that if we talk about our bodies or if we talk about our periods, it's a hack subject. Well, it's not a hack subject. And, um, you know, it's an absolute myth that that's all female comedians talk about is their periods. I mean, for heaven's sake, I don't, I've been doing this for like nearly 17 years. I don't think I've ever seen a woman do a, jo- a period joke because we were told that it, we, we, we can't. Well, guess what? 17 years later, I'm going to do 25 minutes on my period just to piss everybody off. Suck it up. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Jen. No worries. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much to our Patreon supporters. Don't forget you can pre-order Robin's book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, out uh, at the start of October. Don't forget to come and see us uh, with the Book Shambles live shows at Edinburgh Fringe. Robin is also doing solo shows up there, The Satanic Rites of Robin Ince, which is going to be about horror books and horror films, and Chaos of Delight, which is his new stand-up show. And we've got some other live events and other exciting things to announce very soon. I was hoping we could tell you about them this week, but the worlds of of paperwork and PR and such things turn so, so very slowly. So uh, we'll hopefully let you know about that next week. When we'll be back with another new episode. Uh, Hope you enjoyed this one. Hope you have a good week and we'll see you then. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Yeah.